Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Saik Katharisen. Saik is the founder and CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Verve Therapeutics. Verve is using genome editing technology in an especially bold way. Its idea is to develop a one-and-done shot that essentially would prevent cardiovascular disease in adults. Its plan is to start out with a group of patients at very high genetic risk of cardiovascular disease and then potentially broaden the availability of the treatment from there. This treatment, which uses a newer generation editing technique known as base editing, takes aim at a gene called PCSK9. Scientists have known for a long time that if you knock out the activity of this gene, you can dramatically reduce LDL cholesterol and reduce the risk of heart attack, stroke, and death from cardiovascular disease. Verve's technology is different in that it aspires to do this with a single shot. The company has shown some pretty compelling data thus far that the approach works in monkeys and the effects are holding up after six months of follow-up. Saik is a native of India and emigrated to the Pittsburgh area when he was in elementary school. He got a broad-based education there, including a bachelor's degree in history that he says served him well before he became a physician and scientist and entrepreneur. I think you'll enjoy hearing Saik talk about his career journey. Now, before we dive in, a word from the sponsor of The Long Run, Synthago. Synthago is a genome engineering company that enables the acceleration of life science research and development in the pursuit of improved human health. The company leverages machine learning, automation, and gene editing to build platforms for science at scale. With its foundations in engineering disciplines, the company's platforms vertically integrate proprietary hardware, software, bioinformatics, chemistries, and molecular biology to advance life sciences from basic research through therapeutic development programs. By providing commercial and academic researchers and therapeutic developers with unprecedented access to cutting-edge genome editing products and services, Synthago is at the forefront of innovation in engineered biology. Visit Synthago.com slash Timmerman to learn more. And if you go there, you'll not only learn about Synthago, but you'll help Timmerman report along the way. So what's not to like? Go to Synthago.com slash Timmerman. And if you like listening to The Long Run, you'll love reading Timmerman Report. This is where you'll get my in-depth coverage of the most interesting startups in biotech, along with thought-provoking commentary from a diverse cast of contributing writers. Go to TimmermanReport.com for details. Now, please join me and Saik Katharisen on The Long Run. Saik Katharisen, thanks so much for joining me today on The Long Run. Luke, it's, it's a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So, say, uh, first thing I wanted to ask you, it's kind of an oddball question out of the blue, is that, um, you know, I haven't had a chance to get to meet you in person, which I usually would have done at a conference like, say, the J.P. Morgan conference. But instead, I, I sort of feel like I've gotten to know you a little bit through your social media presence. You seem to be a pretty avid user of Twitter and LinkedIn. And I wonder, you know, have you has have your habits around that changed at all uh, in the last couple of years while joining a company? And 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 if so, what what do you get out of them? Um, uh, thanks, Luke. Yeah, I do feel like I really know you through Twitter, actually. And um, Twitter has been fantastic for, for me over the last uh, seven, eight years. Um, and what I what I get out of it is information. Um, and, 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 and really what I find my um, followers want uh, in return is actually information from me. So what I try to do daily is kind of digest um, the things that are interesting to me and then communicate back to um, to to the to the followers an interesting tidbit that I found and uh, the things that I enjoy um, and um, uh, you know are my focal points are um, cardiovascular disease research, human genetics, um, I'm a, a big Pittsburgh Pittsburgh sports fan. Um, so these things that are kind of matter to me, I try to pick one or one or two things each day and then focus on that and give new information back to my followers. And in that way, I found it, I learned something every day uh, and it's been fantastic. And I meet all kinds of amazing people that I would never have had the opportunity to meet in real life. Um, so it's, it's been, it's been great. Of course, there are a lot of distractions. Um, 
you know, the last couple of years with politics and so forth. But I try to, I try to, you know, stay as focused as possible on those few, few core things that I mentioned and away from the distractions. Well, it's funny. I, I would agree with almost everything you just said there. And, uh, you know, I try to keep my usage mostly to biotech, the things that I'm writing about or podcasting about or know the most about, um, and along with a little bit of the personal stuff, like, you know, um, cheering for the Packers and Aaron Rodgers and all that. Uh, so people get to know you a little bit as a person. Um, but um, yeah, it's, it's hard to lay off the politics. I, I, I admit I've, I've <laughs> done a little bit of that myself. But um, anyway, thanks for, for joining me today. We've got a lot to talk about here with uh, with your work at Verve Therapeutics um, and your, your approach to uh, base editing for um, a one-shot deal against cardiovascular disease. Really, really interesting concept here. But before we get into all of that, I, I want to know a little bit more about you as a person. So can you tell me, like, from the beginning, where were you born and raised? Um, so I was born in India, uh, 1971. Um, I, I grew up there till the age of nine. Uh, my father um, left um, in, in 1975 uh, when I was about four uh, with my mom and my youngest sister uh, to come to the U.S., um, uh, to do a PhD in mechanical engineering at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, I stayed behind with my um, older brother. Uh, we stayed with my grandparents. Um, and uh, then when he finished his PhD in 1980, uh, he brought my brother and I uh, to uh, to the States. Um, and we came here in 1980 uh, to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And that's where I grew up, attended high school, North Allegheny High School, um, and then went to college at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, majored in history there. Well, well, sl slow down, slow down, sake. So you you did s had some formative years like by yourself back home in India. I mean, I guess what did you have like extended family members looking after you and your brother? Yeah, it was my grandparents, um, and it's it's kind of an interesting thing to think about now that I'm, you know, father of three, and would I've had the courage um, to leave uh, you know two of my children behind when they were you know four and five. Um, and I didn't see my dad for five years from wow. the ages of four to nine. Um, you know, back then, you know, you know, he just had enough money to come, um, you know, one way flight essentially and, and didn't come back until 1980 when he finished his PhD. So for those five years, uh, we wrote, you know, letters, um, you know, we didn't even, couldn't even call him by telephone. Um, so it was, it was kind of crazy to think back, um, you know, but you know, th that's what it was required for him to, kind of give us the opportunity, um, give, you know, uh, that's what he thought was important to, uh, to, you know, to give opportunity to his family. So, yeah, so that's kind of how it, um, it worked out. And so your, your dad was there at Pittsburgh. What did your mom do? Uh, my mom came with him in 75 and she just supported the household uh, from 75 to 80 uh, with him here in Pittsburgh. So what was the idea of America in his mind that he instilled in you and your siblings? Education. Um, to him, it was all about educational opportunity. Um, you know, he had done um, undergraduate in, in engineering in India. He had done a master's in engineering, um, and uh, he really wanted um, to further himself uh, in in some some way, uh, and and it ended up being through a doctorate um, at the University of Pittsburgh. So he had applied um, from India and gotten acceptances to a couple of places. Uh, and then chose uh, to come to Pittsburgh. And, uh, and I think he did all that uh, with, with the idea of um, giving us uh, a better life in terms of educational opportunity. So you come there in uh, about the age of nine. Um, let's see, you said 1980. So I guess uh, Pittsburgh Steelers were <laughs> the glory. They're, they're, I guess that was after the glory years. Well, here's the thing, Luke. I mean, <laughs> I come in July of, uh, of, of, of 80. They had just won their fourth Super Bowl, right, um, in uh, in like six years, in January of that year, okay? And of course, you know, if you grow up in Pittsburgh, you know, it's in your blood, and I, I became this incredibly ardent, you know, Steelers fan that I am to this day. Uh, but I had to wait 25 years until they won another one. <laughs> well, you, I'm not, not going to sympathize too much with you. Steelers have been pretty good the last uh, 10, 15 years. But um, but but so um, you come there, you're in about, what, nine years old? So fourth grade, um, fifth grade. OK, so going into that. So uh, what kind of student were you? 
Um, I was a good student. Um, you know, as, as I mentioned, my dad and mom were very focused on education. So they made sure that we, um, um, that we paid attention. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I joined uh, SB Elementary School. Uh, this is part of the North Allegheny School District and the suburbs of Pittsburgh. Um, met some, um, some, some good friends, welcomed uh, immediately uh, into the community. Uh, and um, and and really enjoyed uh, uh, all those years from five through um, through the senior year at, at NA. Uh, that's the abbreviation for the school, North Allegheny High School. Um, and just been a, just such fond memories. And what I actually particularly remember is how welcoming everybody was. Um, I um, um, you know though an immigrant and and kind of had a pretty thick accent actually when I first came um, and. Uh, uh, but people, people were super welcoming. That's great. And these were public schools. So this is, you know, and it's not like there were a lot of Indian American immigrants there, were there? No, in my graduating class. So when I graduated in 1988, uh, we had 659 students in my class. And I think there were two, two people of Indian ancestry. Wow. <laughs> um, okay. So now you went to Penn you said, and you majored in history. Is that w- really um, what? What kinds of what eras caught your interest? What did you study? Yeah, um, that so that so I ended up um, um, yeah majoring in history at Penn, and and that interest in history was actually fostered fostered by my um, my high school uh, history teacher, AP history teacher, American history teacher, Dr. Schaefer, eleventh um, grade, amazing class, um, just so. Um, so influential in, in kind of um, in, 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 in many ways, and, and particularly in the idea of developing an argument and, and, and developing an evidence base for an argument. I'm going to tell you a funny story. There's, there's a test that he um, he's the first teacher that kind of asked us to, me at least, to think beyond the facts, you know, the, the, the things that you memorize in history, but rather it's more about putting those facts together into an argument. And um, there's a test that he gave us, and, and, the, and, and I still remember this test. I think the, there was a one sentence, and you're supposed to write an essay defending or, um, or uh, refuting this, this, this statement. And the statement was something like, the northern border of the United States was won by peace and the southern border by war, you know, and period. And, and then you're supposed to, you know, know all the, the, the facts, essentially how each of the, the northern and southern borders were ultimately um, developed and then put those together into an argument, you know? That's really interesting because I think so many kids don't get that. Like in history, it's just rote memorization of dates and facts. Like, well, you know, they established the 49th parallel with Canada and that was that. And then, you know, the, the Mexican War was, you know, whatever, 1844 four to 46 or something like this. Right. And, Oh, you know, you, you get an A on the test. <laughs> right. And, and the reason I bring the story up is it, uh, and it kind of leads into why I chose history for college is that ultimately what I'm doing now in science over the last 15, 20 years is actually benefited tremendously from that, from that experience in history, because science is all about arguments. It's all about data, pulling data together um, to, to, you know, uh, to, to really, uh, support an argument and and also written communication, of course, right, is super important in science. And so anyway, ba- so um, in, so I, I always knew I wanted to do medicine. So when I got into Penn, I did all the pre-med courses, um, but I, I really wanted to have a liberal arts background. And so um, I, uh, I, I settled on um, on history and, 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 and funny enough at Penn, there were three options. There was American history, there was European history, and then the third was all else. <laughs> so not what they call non-Western history. So my major was non-Western. Um, and I took a bunch of classes in, you know, on you know, Chinese cultural revolution, on anthropology in India and, and, and so forth. Um, pulled it all together to, 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 for this major. Okay. Okay. So um, you, you did have your eye on med school early on as an undergraduate. Um, were you thinking about science in particular, or were you thinking more like I'm going to grow up and co- become a doctor someday? Yeah, I, I think I, I, I didn't. Um, I think I had some inkling of research because I had done 
research during um, each of my summers uh, in, 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 in college, um, at least three of the four summers actually. And, um, and one of them, for example, at the University of Pittsburgh at the School of Public Health doing kind of uh, HIV vaccine kind of research. These, these are summer experiences, just kind of give you a taste of what research would be like. So I, I had that in mind, uh, but, but, but mostly I think when I came to Harvard Med, um, it was going to be about practice. Um, and it wasn't until later that I think I got the bug in terms of um, sci- pursuing a career in science. Okay, but this sounds like a really good, well-rounded experience as an undergrad, you know, with arts and sciences uh, combined in different interesting ways. I mean, I don't know if there was necessarily a plan that led you exactly where you ended up, but um, I wonder if you reflect back on that and think that that was... Um, that was beneficial in some ways, rather than, you know, getting on some, you know, really directed track early on to become a physician scientist. Yeah, I do. I do think that the the, the liberal arts background right now, it's I would say it's undervalued. Um, you know, people want to focus pre-professional kind of experience and want to figure out how they can get a good job coming out of college, which is all great. Um, but I, I think that, you know, English um, history um, anthropology, all the liberal arts, it, it, those those um, subjects and pursuing those in college, I think can be very valuable regardless of what you end up doing down the road. Interesting. So you end up at Harvard Medical School. Now, what year was this? I started medical school in 1992. Okay. And were you, how did you end up veering toward cardiology or genetics or the combination of the two? Yeah, so I went through HMS, um, Harvard Medical School, uh, and I took an extra year, um, and I did um, a year of molecular biology research. Uh, it was pretty common for, you know, people in in, in our in my class. About half the class actually took another year to do one thing or another. So at the end of those five years, when I graduated in '97, um, I had uh, you know the solid experience in, in medicine, a training in medicine, and then I had that year of kind of molecular biology research, and um, I knew I wanted to. Um, uh, to do internal medicine, um, and so which is adult medicine, and so that's what I kind of uh, matched in, and I ended up uh, starting training at, at National Hospital, um, and 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 at that point within internal medicine, there were a couple of subspecialties that interested me. Uh, one is kind of diabetes and endocrinology, and the other was cardiology, um, and I think the cardiology is what I ended up landing on, um, largely because we, you know, my family. Um, there's a very strong uh, history of, of premature uh, heart disease. Uh, you know, my grandmother, my uncle, my father, um, and uh, and so that kind of um, you know in, initially interested me. But then I think as I got closer, the, the thing that really attracted me to cardiology was the fact that for any given problem, um, uh, cardiology problem, there was a way to diagnose it, often with very sophisticated technology. But equally importantly, there was always a way to treat, um, you know, with medicines, with procedures, um, you name it. Um, so that is not always true in all aspects of medicine. So um, that's probably what kind of sealed the deal in terms of pursuing cardiology. So you're talking late 90s. By this time, the statins were uh, riding high. Uh, there were, um, you know, angioplasty procedures and um, uh, you know, stents were, were being, I mean, there's a lot of activity, a lot of innovation and, and a lot of um, improved treatment. Crazy amount of activity. I mean, the 80s and 90s were just this incredible amount of innovation in cardiology, as you remember. Um, exactly as you said, I remember where I was in medical school when the first um, statin uh, trial came out, um, sitting in, in um, in my second year um, in 1994, uh, when some of the earliest uh, outcomes trials with statins came out, west of Scotland uh, and so forth, and, and really showing for the first time that these medicines not only lower LDL, but also reduce risk of heart attack. Um, and so that really influenced me. And then, as you said, the 90s were a tremendous amount of innovation in terms of angioplasty and then stents and then coded stents and then there were these new medicines called glycoprotein 2b3 inhibitors that kind of prevented um, the clotting. Uh, and then in addition, there was a big um, advance in terms of diagnostics, um, the blood troponin test, uh, which is a test that kind of detects uh, heart injury 
Um, and it was incredibly more sensitive to detect a heart attack than the previous gold standard, which was the creatine kinase, CK. So all of these advances were in the 90s and early 2000s. And, and that's really when I trained in medicine and cardiology. And when did the genetic component get layered in there for you? That was really in 1997 or so. So I'd finished uh, 98, let's say. I'd finished medical school. I started at Mass General Hospital. Um, and um, at that time, um, you had to start thinking about um, what you wanted to do in terms of subspecialty training um, as a first-year resident, as an intern. And so, and one of the things you wanted to do was like think through, well, if I wanted to do cardiology, I probably, and apply in cardiology, I probably needed to do some research in cardiology. So I got um, hooked up with, with a, 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 um, a faculty member named Chris O'Donnell. And Chris was, um, was um, uh, a faculty member at MGH, but also part of the National Heart Blung National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute's Framingham Heart Study. And Chris was designing a research project trying to understand the genetic basis for premature heart attack, premature myocardial infarction. And um, I was going to be able to help because he was looking to recruit patients in, you know, hospitalized at MGH who had had a heart attack for men before the age of 50 and women before the age of 60. And so, um, and he wanted, uh, you know, I was going to be on the wards and he wanted help uh, finding people and recruiting people. So I signed up with him as a, you know, for this research project. And um, that's how this all got started. That was before the genome project. Um, Chris had the foresight to know that, look, if we collect the samples now, recruit these patients in a few years, when we have a better understanding uh, of polymorphisms and the genome, we'll be able to leverage this resource to, to make discoveries. And so that's what happened, Luke, over about uh, four or five years um, I worked with Chris O'Donnell uh, and Callum McRae to um, recruit roughly 600 people uh, with premature heart attack at Mass General Hospital. And uh, that resource, believe it or not, has kind of been the go-to foundation for a lot of my work over the subsequent 15 years. The sponsor of The Long Run is Synthigo. Synthigo is a genome engineering company that enables the acceleration of life science research and development in the pursuit of improved human health. The company leverages machine learning, automation, and gene editing to build platforms for science at scale. With its foundations in engineering disciplines, the company's platforms vertically integrate proprietary hardware, software, bioinformatics, chemistries, and molecular biology to advance life sciences from basic research through therapeutic development programs. By providing commercial and academic researchers and therapeutic developers with unprecedented access to cutting-edge genome engineering products and services, Synthigo is at the forefront of innovation in engineered biology. Go to synthigo.com slash Timmerman to learn more. I'll say that again. Go to synthigo.com slash Timmerman to learn more. So a lot of what we know about cardiovascular disease is drawn from this incredible uh, longitudinal study still going. Um, and and uh, the Genome Project was, you know, still kind of a twinkle in people's eye. It, it, was, it was picking up steam there in the late 90s, but not yet done. Um, and and was that really an animating question? Like, were you beginning to pull these threads together and say, you know, I if we can get this kind of information, we can tease apart some more of what's causing cardiovascular disease in, in addition to, um, you, you know, the environmental factors, the cheeseburgers and everything else that we, that we know about. That's exactly right, Luke. It, it is kind of being at the right place at the right time. And, and you know, sometimes, um, you know, you develop ideas, you develop um, interests, and then, you know, you're, you know, I've had the fortune of being able to pursue that that question, um, you know, for the subsequent 20 years, 20 plus years. And, and the, the reason I say this is in, I had to apply for cardiology, as I said, for fellowship programs uh, in, in 97, 98. And uh, my application in 98, you're, 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 you're supposed to put together a research vision. Um, and my personal statement um, was about, uh, basically said, I want to understand um, the inherited basis for common complex disease. Um, we have a good understanding of monogenic disease, 
but little understanding of common complex disease. Um, the tools to understand common complex disease genetics are just um, kind of coming into the fore. And I want to develop the right skills um, to be able to leverage the new tools and answer this question, specifically for one complex disease of interest, which is uh, atherosclerosis and, and heart attack. And, um, and, and so what I said in that application was, um, I thought I needed to learn um, the science of, 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 of uh, epidemiology, so kind of a mature field, but basically population science, and then marry that with the emerging tools of human genetics. And so, um, and so, and, and, and Luke, that's actually what I did. So I ended up finishing my clinical training um, in 2003. So this is cardiology and then a year as chief resident, and then did five years of research training uh, combined uh, in population science at the Framingham Heart Study, and then human genetics uh, at the Broad Institute, um, and, and, and really uh, dove into uh, the genetic basis uh, of uh, common complex coronary disease. Really interesting. So at this point, I mean, you're an MD, PhD, but are, are you on the faculty at this point? Actually, no PhD. So I okay. just MD, um, but I had done, um, I did the research training. Um, so yeah, I did the clinical training from 97 to 2003, research training, postdoc, basically from 2003 to 2008, um, and, um, and then came on faculty in 2008. Okay. Okay. So what were some of the most important things that you learned during the, those years of the aughts when you were in that kind of postdoc phase? That's a, um, it's, it's a great, great question. Um, and, you know, there are things that I learned from a kind of a content perspective, but better, more important, I think, things I learned kind of in terms of how to be a scientist and the, the animating questions there. Probably the most important thing I learned um, is, is really to pick – um, pick your problem very carefully, the problem you want to study. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, in particular, my mentor, David Altshuler, uh, was super focused on um, making sure that you're not kind of, quote, unquote, turning the crank, um, that you really are trying to do something new. Uh, and at that time, um, what we were trying to do, which is to really try to, to understand the inherited basis of of coronary disease, a complex trait, um, was something new. You know, we didn't have a playbook, um, and and um, there are all kinds of theories about the the genetic architecture of of, uh, of heart attack. Um, we knew that it was inherited in, in some fashion, um, and the question is, um, how so? Um, is it, you know, uh, a bunch of common DNA sequence variants, each with modest effect? Um, is it a bunch of rare mutations um, that each individually contribute to risk? Um, uh, it was very unclear. And so uh, that journey over the uh, 2003 to 2008 uh, was quite exhilarating. I mean, it was um, a brand new technology, these genotyping chips, uh, brand new methodology, statistical methodology to analyze the correlation between polymorphisms and risk for disease across the genome. Um, and then um, um, and then, uh, and then I applied that to really uh, two sets of problems, really. Uh, one, the heart attack, yes, no, kind of a, what's called a dichotomous trait, and then also quantitative risk factor, uh, cholesterol levels, LDL levels, and really try to um, pull all that together in terms of an understanding of, uh, uh, in terms of the genetic basis for these traits. And so, um, it was uh, it was it was an incredible time. So it was an exhilarating time, but but also I, I would imagine maybe frustrating to some people because you know I, I think back to those years and there was this uh, sense that well there must be a gene for X, <laughs> right? Like there's there's one gene that that holds the key, and then we'll figure that out, and we'll just make a drug, and voila, like we'll cure heart heart disease. And it's not that simple. It's multifactorial, as you say. The key word is polygenic. You know that's kind of what came out of all those all those years um, that that it, that basically these these diseases um, the most common diseases in the world heart attack diabetes Alzheimer's um, they're all an interplay of um, genetic factors and um, non-genetic factors lifestyle environment um, and then when you look closer at the genetic factors um, it is typically not one thing. Um, it's actually many, many, many things. Um, and so um, it, that, that result, okay, might have been frustrating to some, but to, to us, 
um, uh, it, it actually, you know, it is what it is. I mean, that is the architecture. That is the reality. And, 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 um, and we, I found it to be, um, um, you know, a little bit surprising result, I guess, in some, some ways, but, um, but also uh, we found very clever ways to use that information um, to get new insights, um, new insights into kind of what risk factors are important for disease. And we can talk a little bit about this in terms of the HTL, LDL kind of story, uh, new insights into mechanistic understanding of the disease. And then lastly, new insights into therapeutic approaches. Well, you mentioned the HDL, LDL axis. I mean, and this, these were the years too when the pharmaceutical industry tried to raise HDL while lowering the LDL and that didn't work. That <laughs> uh, one of the big frustrations. Um, but um, but you in these years were, were you're doing the science. It sounds like both in your postdoc years and then you know, joining the faculty there in 08 at the Broad and, and MGH, and it's sort of like the, the deeper you go into the genetics, um, you know, the more complicated the story gets. Uh, so, and and so I mean, you're just continually asking more and more questions. That's right. My focus was really, as a, from the beginning, has been this one disease, coronary disease, and the inherited basis. But I also try to bring in um, the relationship between risk factors and this disease. And you know, if I think back to you know, you know, those years and and say, well, what are the most important contributions uh, we made as a group? Um, uh, you know, there's just probably a couple of them, a handful. Um, and probably the one of the most important ones was this HDL LDL loop, um, and because it, it was a, it was what, what was clear was that LDL was a causal molecule for coronary disease, um, and you want to bring it down, um, and and treatments have brought it down, reduced risk. Uh, but there was an equal hypothesis that medicines designed to raise HDL, so the so-called good cholesterol, would actually reduce the risk of heart attack. And there was a tremendous effort to develop medicines to raise HDL. Um, now, that was all based on observational epidemiology. There was a correlation in the population between, let's say, low levels of HDL and increased risk of heart attack, right? Um, but that was just a correlation. And, and that does not necessarily mean that it's a causal relationship. Correlation is not causation. That's one of the first things they got to teach you in science journalism school. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, but uh, people were convinced that medicines designed to raise HDL would work. Um, and so we kind of took a genetics approach. And this is one of the kind of applications of human genetics, com complex trait genetics, um, a technique called Mendelian randomization. But it, it's a pretty simple concept is that, is that, if um, a, a molecule like HDL, a biomarker like HDL was causal, then people who carried mutations um, that, for example, raised HDL lifelong, right? Um, you can look at that, those individuals and ask, are they protected from heart attack? Um, because if HDL was causal, then people who carried a mutation that, that naturally raised their HDL lifelong should have lower risk for heart attack. And uh, so that's the concept. And so we did that. We, we asked that question um, using a very specific uh, a gene mutation that raised HDL pretty markedly in people. And then we looked at about 100,000 people with and without the mutation and showed surprisingly that those who carried the mutation that raised HDL had the same risk of heart attack as those who didn't. So if we had known that Years earlier, I suppose maybe Pfizer or some of these other companies might have thought twice about advancing their uh, their their ill-fated programs uh, into phase three trials. Absolutely, there have been like four failed HDL raising trials, each probably a half to one billion dollars of drug development. Um, and yeah, this kind of information might have you know made them reappraise their their uh, probability of success for those for those programs. Now I should know this, sake, but. Um, was this around the time when Helen Hobbs made her observation there about PCSK9 and this, I think it was just one or two individuals who had this gene um, deleted and, um, you know, had much lower LDL cholesterol, uh, but apparently no other deleterious health effects. That's right. It was, it was, this is all around the same time. So this work that we did um, on the HDL was in 2012, um, and we and 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 we predicted that medicines designed to raise HDL wouldn't work. In fact, 
just a couple a month later, um, one of the major CTP inhibitor trials read out for dalcetrib from Roche, um, and uh, and and there the medicine raised HDL but did not have any effect on uh, clinical events. Very consistent uh, with our genetics prediction. Uh, but but around that time, um, Marianne Abafadel and Catherine Boulot. Uh, discovered a family in um, in in France um, who had a very high LDL, premature heart attack and stroke, uh, and discovered that the causal gene was PCSK9, um, that a mutation in that gene uh, was responsible for the high LDL, early heart attack and stroke. Um, subsequently, Helen and Jonathan, Helen Hobbs and Jonathan Cohen and UT Southwestern sequenced um, this gene in the Dallas Heart Study um, in people who had very high LDL and very low LDL, and surprisingly found that about one in 50 African Americans um, uh, basically carried a, a mutation, a nonsense mutation in the PCSK9 gene. Um, and, uh, and, and those people uh, uh, basically were among the low LDL group. Um, and so this suggested that breaking PCSK9 basically leads to very low levels of LDL. Um, and in contrast to the earlier finding from Boulot, where basically gain of PCSK9 function led to high LDL and premature stroke and heart attack. Um, so Helen and Jonathan's observation was very powerful because they went on to show in 2016, uh, sorry, 2006, um, that, um, that basically um, that, that, um, that they, that, that um, the individuals, those, those African-American individuals, the one in 50 that carried the mutation, the lowered LDL, they had like an 88% reduction in, um, in coronary events. Um, so near complete protection from coronary disease. Um, so this, this really gave um, impetus to um, targeting PCSK9 as a uh, for LDL lowering and, and heart attack treatment. Oh, okay. So I actually had this wrong. I thought this was a much more rare uh, mutation, uh, but actually, it's it's more prevalent uh, in the in the wider population, at least among African Americans. That's right. That's right. Yeah, among African Americans, the prevalence is two percent. So. Um, what, what were your and your colleagues' reactions when you saw this? Like, suddenly there's a story coming together here around PCSK9 um, on both sides. Yeah. Um, and so that gave, the, gave us the idea um, to really think through these prote- what's so-called protective mutations or resistance mutations. Um, so um, for cardiovascular disease, the PCSK9 mutation, um, null mutation in blacks was was the first uh, such identified for resistance to disease. Um, and so we actually spent a lot of time in the subsequent years uh, when the technology matured um, to more, more reproducibly find such mutations. And that technology I'm talking about is exome sequencing. Um, so this is the ability to sequence um, every protein coding gene in the genome uh, in one experiment in a single person. Um, so in 2008, nine, um, this technology, uh, you know, as you you know you know well because it was developed um, at UT, University of Washington um, by Jason Dury and, and others, um, uh, became um, wi- widely uh, available. Um, and we ended up applying that technology to thousands of people with premature heart attack and thousands of individuals free of heart attack, and and, and over a few years um, systematically discovered or contributed to the discovery of, of seven additional um, situations like the PCSK9 story, where individuals would carry the mutation, the mutation would turn off the gene in the liver, and then they would have lifelong low levels of LDL or triglycerides or lipoprotein little a and would be resistant to heart attack. Uh, so so, so, so that, that was really uh, one of our uh, additional contributions beyond the HDL story. And how, how important was looking at these uh, kind of rare phenotypes? I, I think I've seen you present before on, you know, like there being a population in Pakistan or, or elsewhere, like a um, kind of an insular community, which uh, has, a, um, you know, this observation about its, ins- its, uh, its risk of heart disease uh, at a premature age. And then like 
looking at those people and drilling into the genetics about what's going on there. Was that really the way you, you, you approach this? We approached it in two ways. One is at the population level. So that's the study that I just described where you take thousands of people with disease, without disease, and do comprehensive sequencing to compare their genomes. Uh, and that's really kind of uh, uh, more of a, a population approach to genetics. Um, and then in parallel, uh, we also took the standard kind of um, rare phenotype, rare rare. Um, extreme phenotype approach in families um, and, and then brought those two together. Um, and I'll give you an example of that. Uh, that has, is, is a family in St. Louis. Um, so in, in 2008 and nine, um, we ended up working with a couple of investigators in St. Louis um, who, had, who had recruited a, a family or two um, that, where their LDL values in the family were like in the 20s and 30s. So vanishing LDL levels uh, and the triglycerides were also in the teens. Um, and, um, and, 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 and they had been working for several years to try to, you know, it looked like a single gene was responsible for the extremely low lipid levels. They had been working for several years to try to figure this out. Uh, well, we came along and said, look, um, we have this new technology that's working at the Broad called exome sequencing. Um, can we work with you to try to solve this family? So, um, uh, Gustav Schoenfeld, who was the investigator in, in St. Louis, Washington St. Louis, sent us the DNA. And um, it was, believe it or not, Luke, it was like the first family that we sent through for exome sequencing at the Broad Institute. And we figured out the reason um, they had such low lipid levels was four people in the family were human knockouts uh, for a gene called angiopotin-like 3 or ANGPTL3. Um, so they... Uh, if you, these people completely lacked the gene because they had two nonsense mutations, both alleles were, had nonsense mutations. And um, in every tissue, they lacked angioptil. They were healthy and they had extremely low triglycerides, extremely low LDL. Um, and, and then, so that was kind of the, the family piece of it, the family study piece of it. And then we went on to kind of look at it at the population level and then figured out that about one in several hundred in the general population have one copy of the gene broken and they have low triglycerides, low LDL, and were resistant to heart attack. Um, so this is a story that's kind of quite similar to PCSK9, um, and, uh, but, it, but it reflects kind of a, a marriage of the two approaches, the population approach and the, uh, the rare uh, extreme phenotype approach. But now you're really looking at something that is going to perk up ears in the pharmaceutical industry uh, because you have a gene, uh, ANGPTL3, and, and there's another one, AP. APOC3, I guess is that how you say it, uh, APOC3, where, you know, it looks like, you know, you got these people, I mean, humans, it's, it's, a, it's a nice thing, where they uh, have, you can observe the, the phenotype, really low LDL, low triglycerides, low risk of heart attack through the family and everything. Uh, and apparently, you know, no real problem. This gene, for whatever reason or another, it just doesn't seem to be that important for you know, other processes. So gosh, you know, maybe that's a good drug target. Absolutely. Um, so these genes, uh, for lack of a better term, are truly spare parts. Um, you don't seem to need them and getting rid of them only leads to good things. And besides PCSK9, besides ANGPTL3, I'll just mention the, expand on the one you mentioned, APOC3. That's an, also another interesting story where it's a, it's kind of a, a combination of the population approach and the, the extreme phenotype approach. The population approach, we sequenced lots of people with high and low triglycerides and figured out that APOC3 mutations uh, that break the gene lead to very low triglycerides. Then we went on and sequenced this, this and all, a lot of other genes in a, in, a, in a study in Pakistan where there's actually a fair amount of uh, consanguinity um, where basically uh, closely related individuals you know, marry and, and have children. Um, and um, and that, that situation can, can lead to regions of the genome that are kind of homozygous uh, um, where both alleles uh, are the same. And in, in sequencing of about 7,000 people from, that, from a study in Pakistan, we found humans uh, who completely lacked the APOC3 gene um, in one fishing village kind of outside of Karachi, Pakistan. And um, those individuals had these very low lipid levels and were healthy. So kind of similar to the you know, ANGPTL3 story. So 
these genes, PCSK9, APOC3, ANGPTL3, have uh, emerged as important drug targets now for, uh, for cardiovascular disease. Okay, so life is pretty good. I mean, you're working on all this interesting research at MGH, the Broad. I mean, you're surrounded by brilliant colleagues. Uh, and then one day, uh, what happens like to you? you? You switch from academia to industry and go all in, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it, 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 it was over a couple of years, uh, and I'll tell you the story. It started in 2016, Luke, um, with a competition, actually, from the American Heart Association called One Brave Idea. And I don't know if you remember, but uh, they, they put uh, Google, or Barely, actually, um, AstraZeneca and AHA put together $75 million. And they were going to give it to one awardee. And what they wanted was one idea, one team, one cure for heart attack. Okay, and I was like, well, like, this is the problem I've been working on my whole life. I have an idea how to cure a heart attack, you know. So I, I worked with um, Feng Zhang, and our idea was, so the human genetics taught us that if one's LDL is low lifelong, it's really hard to get a heart attack. Almost impossible. Okay. So we said, why don't we develop a medicine, a gene editing medicine, for example, that would mimic those natural resistance mutations that have been found in the general population. So that was our idea. We, 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 put, we put this together, we submitted to the AHA, um, and um, we didn't end up winning that competition. Uh, but I was uh, you know, so convinced by that idea um, that I said, let's just do it. Let's raise the money. So over the subsequent two years, Luke, from 2016 to 18, I worked with Anthony Filipakis, uh, who's a venture partner at GV, but also a colleague at the Broad, and he really helped me pull together a syndicate that would be that would support this idea, and we raised Series A funding. So, and, and Fung by this time he had founded uh, Editas and, and other things too. So you know, in this industry was um, a partner. I mean, this is the place to do applied science to to build on you know those foundational discoveries. Absolutely. And it was very much core to the Broad's mission, you know? I mean, the way I think about it, and it's it's kind of, I have to pinch myself. Like I spent, you know, 15 years reading and interpreting the genome for risk as well as resistance. And then there came along this opportunity to rewrite the genome for cardiovascular health, you know? And, um, and I was like, oh, we got to go do this. So we spent a couple of years, as I said, raised the resources, um, and got all the the right licenses. We didn't want to be wedded, Luke, to one technology. So we got access to the Cas9 technology. We got access to base editing, a new invention by David Liu. Um, we got access to a couple of other nucleases, um, and and said, okay, we're going to figure out what's the right way to to, to develop this gene editing medicine. Um, so that brings us to 2018. I was still an academic. I still had a very productive lab. We we got the Series A funding. It closed. Um, and then we were, you know, we had been we had been meeting weekly for two years, from 16 to 18, to pull this company together. Uh, and then when it when it when it after the Series A closed, I was looking. We were all looking around. And we're like, all right, who's going to lead this thing? So <laughs> you hadn't had that conversation yet. <laughs> no, no, because you know, I, I, people assumed that I would just, you know, I had a very good gig. You know, I had just been promoted to full professor at Harvard Medical School, and. Uh, I think people didn't really think I would, I would, you know, jump ship. Um, uh, but I, I got, you know, I got excited because, as I said, this is a, an opportunity to really translate all of those, those research findings uh, to what I think could be a cure for this disease if, if it can be done safely, um, if the editing can be done safely. So, um, so I put my, you know, name in, in, the, in, the, in the hat, as they say, and, and uh, they were, you know, the, the board was super excited to, um, uh, to, to kind of uh, have me think about it. And, and, um, and so, yeah, that's kind of how I ended up making the transition in early 2019. Now, were you able to keep your lab going on the side uh, or, or, or something affiliated over there? You know, that, that, you know, some people do that, um, but I, I didn't, I, I didn't think it would do, do you know, would, would do the, the company justice or the lab justice by trying to kind of split things. Um, I kind of wanted to go all in and, and make this work. So, um, I ended up um, closing uh, the lab that spanned MGH and the Broad. Found a home for all of the trainees. The lab was about 25 people. 
Um, so there was a fair amount of like several months of work to try to make sure everybody had a, uh, a transition to a mentor, a new home and so forth. But that all sure. that worked out, worked out well. So you're all in at Verve Therapeutics early 20. When was this? 2019? 19. Yeah. Uh, and how big was the Series A? Uh, 58 and a half million. Okay. And so you got some runway now to um, put together the company. Uh, and you, you've alluded to this, but can you describe the, the product candidate that you have you had in mind from the start? Because, I mean, it, it's aimed at PCSK9. And there were already, you know, a couple of very good antibody drugs uh, out there against this and, you know, an siRNA in development. So w- what were you thinking that you could do that would be really value added uh, above and beyond? Yeah, the unmet need here is that our approach to chronic disease, like coronary heart disease, is chronic care. So daily pills, intermittent injections over a lifetime. And that chronic care model puts a tremendous burden on our patients and our system. And um, it, doesn't trip, it doesn't actually meet their needs, the patient's needs in the real world. Um, I'll give you a very simple stat. Um, you know, the average person has a heart attack in the US, average man, 65 years old, okay? They have about a 10 year life expectancy ahead of them after that. They're supposed to take a pill every day to lower their cholesterol for the rest of their life after that heart attack. That's the primary treatment. Turns out if you look in, you know, studies, only about half the people are still taking their pills one year out after the heart attack. That's even if you give the medicine for free. So um, this burden that we place on patients in the chronic care model is, is tough. And so what our idea is one and done. So one-time treatment, permanent lowering of cholesterol. And the vision for Verve was that simple, is that if that could be done safely, um, it really could transform the care of this disease in terms of not only treatment, but if given early enough, um, this has the potential to eradicate coronary disease. So, so that's, that's kind of um, where we started. It's uh, it's bold. And CRISPR was here. Uh, and uh, as you say, you've got the license for that. Also, the base editing for some more, I guess, precision fine tune um, CRISPR gene editing uh, was was also available. Um, could you could you talk a little bit about like the product candidate itself that you've arrived on? Like, what have you built here? Yeah. So over the couple of years, um, two years, um, what we've done is arrived at a lead candidate. And what that involved, uh, Luke, is, is basically testing um, both the standard Cas9 approach as well as the base editing approach in cells, mice, and most importantly, in monkeys, non-human primates, um, and to, to really optimize and get to a lead candidate. And what we found, we prioritized the base editing technology uh, to turn off the PCSK9 gene and arrived at a lead product candidate we just announced a couple of weeks ago. And that candidate, the product candidate, is it looks like this. It's an mRNA uh, for the base editor, adenine base editor. And the adenine base editor is uh, allows you to make a, a single spelling change in the genome, uh, the letter A to a letter G at one spot in the genome without double-strand breaks. It's a chemical conversion. There are no double-strand breaks. So there's the adenine base editor to mRNA. There's a guide RNA that tells the adenine base editor where to go. And this guide RNA that we're, we're giving basically targets the PCSK9 gene, one spot in the PCSK9 gene. Those two nucleic acids, Luke, are packaged in a delivery vehicle. And it's a non-viral delivery vehicle called the lipid nanoparticle. And so that's our drug. Um, and what we do is we, when you mix the two nucleic acids, the negatively charged nucleic acids, with the four lipids that are constituent for the lipid nanoparticle, you get spontaneous formation of these little spherical balls, the lipid nanoparticles, with the, with the mRNA and guide RNA cargo in the middle. We deliver that, Luke, intravenously through the peripheral IV. Um, and when you deliver intravenously, in, you know, the stuff goes into the bloodstream and then almost all of it makes its way to the liver. And then it's taken up by liver cells um, and, and makes its way into the cytoplasm of a liver cell, a hepatocyte. And then the, uh, the mRNA and the guide RNA are released into the cytoplasm. The mRNA is translated into adenine base editor protein. 
the adenine base editor protein binds to the guide RNA. That complex makes its way to the nucleus and then scans the genome until there's a match at that PCSK9 spot. And then there's an A to G change made at that one spot in the genome. It's a single A to G change. That's it. And that's, that's enough to disrupt the PCSK9 gene and, and, and shut down all that downstream uh, production of cholesterol. Hey, look, when we started a couple of years ago, we had no idea this would work, okay? And uh, but it does work. It works it really beautifully in non-human primates. Um, and, and, and so we, 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 we presented this data uh, last June and then the follow-up data in January. And um, the data are stunning. So you, you inject, all the stuff happens, and then you get that single base pair change. And the result is that, um, that, that the PCSK9 gene is shut off in basically nearly every liver cell in the non-human primate liver. And the consequence of that is the blood PCSK9 protein level goes down by 90%. 90%. That's even more than what we see with the antibodies or the siRNA. It's more than what you see with the siRNA. Yeah. The antibodies, as you know, neutralize the circulating PCSK9. So they do a, they do a pretty good job. Yeah. But, um, and then, and then uh, most importantly, the consequence of the 90% lowering of plasma PCSK9 is a 60% lowering of, of LDL. Now, last June, Luke, we showed all that can happen in two weeks. You know, th that was two week endpoint. Uh, two weeks after treatment. Now in January, we just released data that where those same monkeys have been followed now for six months. At the six month time point, believe it or not, the PCSK9 is still down 90% and the LDL is still down 61%. Well, that was gonna be my next question. Like, do you get long-term expression? This is, this is a DNA edit of the endogenous DNA. And, and so this is what's quite different from this approach to gene therapy, where there's all kinds of issues regarding durability. With it, with an edit of the endogenous DNA, it's pretty clear to us now, this is going to be durable, likely for the lifetime of the animal. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, you mentioned that monkeys were in particular uh, of importance. Why, why, why is that? Well, the delivery system, the lipid nanoparticles, and this whole machinery to edit, um, there's a big gap, translation gap, between mice and larger animal models, mo animal models much closer to humans. Um, and um, it turns out that like almost any lipid nanoparticle and almost any editing system works well in mice. But very few people have actually gotten this approach to work in monkeys. In fact, for base editing, our data is first in world. Um, in terms of showing that base editing can work for an in vivo liver application. Uh-huh. And the, well, I guess the lipid nanoparticle, the delivery piece, it's always, always important with uh, RNA-directed medicines. Um, and, and do you think you're building off of like past experience and success with, with that piece? Absolutely. I mean, there's, you know, there's been almost 10, 10 15 years of work in this area, um, you know, initially by... Um, these companies like Acuitas and and uh, Arbutus and 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 then um, Moderna and then Alnylam, um, you know Alnylam's uh, Patisseran product that targets TTR is the first approved medicine using a lipid nanoparticle delivery vehicle for in vivo liver, um, and so we definitely are building off all those successes. So it it gets where it needs to go in the liver. It makes its edit, and then it doesn't. It doesn't need to be expressed over the long term. It's a permanent thing. Is, is this is this a is this a germline edit? No, it's so no, it's 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 a it's not an when you when you it's not an edit of the ovaries or sperm cells in that way. Um, but it is it is an edit of the uh, endogenous hepatocytes, um, both alleles. Um, and okay. so so uh, the entire drug product. So you go in, it goes in. The editing happens. The editing almost happens completely in the first 48 to 72 hours. And then the drug products, so the lipid nanoparticle, um, the mRNA and the guide RNA are all gone within the first two weeks. Wow. So, and, and you're getting that six-month lasting 
change, which um, is absolutely crucial for a product that's intended to be a, a one-shot deal. Um, now, what's your target patient population? Yeah, that's something we just announced as well as our lead indication. So um, we have a, a stepwise development strategy, Luke. Um, we're gonna we're gonna start with patients with a, a genetic form of of coronary disease called uh, familial hypercholesterolemia. So this is a genetic form of high cholesterol and premature heart attack and death, um, and 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 really um, uh, 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 offer a genetic medicine essentially for a genetic disease. Um, and uh, with that in hand, uh, we do expect to expand our indication. Uh, to a broader group in a step two, um, that would be really anybody with established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Um, and then step three, and this is probably many years from now with a, with a sufficient safety database, this could really be a truly a preventive therapy for anybody at risk for heart disease. My imagination was starting to go there. <laughs> um, that would be like really, really big. When do you think that this treatment might be best given? Like if you're one of these at super high risk heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia patients, you know you have a genetic heart condition, it's, it's fatal. Um, are, are you thinking that you'll give this to uh, the people in young adulthood? Um, you know, as long as your, your safety, you know, knock wood, holds up? Yeah, our our um, our starting point will be in adults, um, and will be in adults who've already had a heart attack. Um, so these are FH patients who've already had a heart attack, uh, and because you know, the, and 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 the it's all about risk benefit profile for a new medicine, right? And I think um, with a gene editing medicine like ours, a one and done, I think if 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 you have a heterozygous FH patient who's had sky high LDL his whole life, his or her whole life they've suffered a heart attack already and they still have high LDL, that would be a very reasonable place. Uh, there would be clinical equipoise to say, look, you know, here's a potential cure for your high cholesterol, you know? Um, but I think your point, what you're trying to get at is, yes, ideally, you may even want to start earlier. Move it early before the damage is done. Exactly. And that's where we ultimately want to go. Um, but I think we'd want to um, you know, establish uh, sufficient safety and efficacy um, in in a in a in an even higher risk group. That group with a, who's already had a heart attack before we move uh, to uh, to earlier in the disease process. Okay. Well, keyword there is stepwise. You know, it sounds like you you have a clinical development plan that's coming together. Uh, wh when do you anticipate you'll you'll go to the clinic first? And and will this be actually the first time? Anyone's taken a base editing therapy into uh, humans? Um, this will be likely the, the first for base editing in vivo. Um, so for, for a kind of, a, you know, in the body editing. Yep. Beam Therapeutics um, is planning um, ex vivo editing for sickle cell disease and, um, and uh, uh, transfusion dependent thalassemia, where they take cells out of the body, edit, base edit, and then put it back in. Yeah, but that's different than in vivo. And, and Beam is your partner, right? Exactly. Yeah, our, our, yeah. we license the base setting technology from Beam. Um, in terms of our clinical development, yeah, this year is all about toxicology uh, and IND enabling studies. We expect to um, to have a package, a data package, to submit an IND to the FDA next year, and we expect to dose our first patients in 2022. Okay. Okay. What do you think are going to be the, the big questions when you get there in, in 2022? I mean, are you going to be looking at like hard at things like on-target and off-target effects? And are you developing assays to like really flesh that out? Because, um, I mean, the stakes are obviously very high with a one-shot one shot deal. Absolutely. There are two major aspects, three major aspects. One is efficacy. Can we lower cholesterol dramatically like we've done in the monkeys? And will there be good translation from human, from monkey to human. Um, and then there's two major aspects of safety. One aspect is the safety in terms of with the acute infusion of the lipid nanoparticle. Um, and there's been considerable experience on that uh, based on alnylam and Moderna. Um, and, 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 and there's a couple of predictable reactions that patients get with infusion of lipid nanoparticles. Um, and that is an inflammatory reaction. And then sometimes they get elevation in the liver function tests. 
Um, and, and that's been limiting uh, for um, therapies where there has to be chronic dosing, you know, repeat dosing like mRNA replacement therapy. And, uh, but for us, um, uh, you know, we, it's a one and done, it's a one-time therapy. And so, and, and so we found in our monkey studies that the one-time infusion is actually quite well tolerated um, but so that, but th- that's an aspect of safety we have to, we're going to continue to work on. Then the second aspect of safety is off target. So, you know, we want to make that one spell, one letter spelling change in the one spot um, of interest, which is um, in the PCSK9 gene, but we don't want to make it anywhere else, Luke, you know, so-called off target editing. And so this is an area of, of, of very high importance. Uh, and we put a lot of effort into this. Uh, and there's lots of different technologies available to assess off-target editing. It's a fast-moving field. Um, for our lead program, um, for the guide um, and the editor that we have, that pair, um, uh, we've we've done some initial work. Our initial work on off-target really suggests that it's that this pair is highly specific. Uh, we're getting editing at the intended spot, but 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 no editing anywhere else. Well, that's. Um really good news. Um, and uh, I, I understand why you'll need to like really uh, run through the paces and, and double check that every which way you're going to be in close contact with the FDA, I, I would imagine. Any, anybody who's, you know, out there on the front edge of the spear <laughs> has to be because a, a setback, I mean, for you guys would not only be bad for you guys, but for the whole field. Um, so, um, this this is an exciting time. I mean, what do you think, say, is going to be your your, your long term vision for this thing? I mean, you don't want to sound too too cocky, I guess, but like I mean, to to eliminate cardiovascular disease. You know, look if if LDL is low enough for long enough, it's very hard to get a heart attack. So if we can do this safely, Luke, we can eradicate this disease. You know, my vision is to get to that step three, you know, imagine, you know, somebody turns 40 and, or even earlier, you know, 30 and people get a shot, one shot, lower your LDL for the rest of your life. It's, it's kind of like science fiction. It's kind of hard to imagine. It's like, you know, Hey, I'm 40 and, uh, you know, it's it's time to get a vasectomy. Like I'm done with fatherhood. (laughs) Right. It's like, well, you know, I think I'll just like uh, take uh, the risk of heart attack off the table <laughs> rest of my life. The reason I'm, you know, this it's such a compelling uh, approach in terms of the LDL lowering is, you know, I think we, we've kind of interacted maybe a little bit on this on, on Twitter. You know, longevity, everybody wants to live a very long life and it's a very hot topic right now. If in all these genetic studies that have looked at longevity, the number one genetic finding that emerges is genes, gene variants that lower LDL. They're the ones that make you live a long life. So, so it's, it's all these unbiased studies really point to having LDL super low, lifelong. Um, you know, this has the potential to, to really, you know, prolong lots of people's lives. Live long and, and live vigorous lives past 40. I think a lot of people would, uh, would sign up for that. That's where the, the name Verve comes from, you know, big vigor. Uh, we want to give, give people back their vitality. It, it is a good name. And I wondered why it wasn't taken. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's, um, Verve, there's Verve records, but not uh, Verve therapeutics. Well, you, you want to hold on to that and trademark if you haven't already. Uh, St. Catherine, thanks so much for joining me today on The Long Run. My pleasure, Lou. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.